Hello, Dragonlance fans. This is Megan speaking. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in December of 2021. In case you're wondering why we're talking about old news as if it's brand new. I wanted to keep that segment because the release of Dragons of Deceit is now only three months away as of this recording, and we need to squeeze in every last bit of speculation we can. Enjoy! The Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. Greetings, friends and fellow companions, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dragonlance Canticle, broadcasting from the new Dragonhelm Keep and lamenting over having baked potato soup instead of a barbecue sandwich. I am Trampus Whiteman. Oh, man, we're talking about lunch. Uh, well, I just had uh, some, some <laughs> delicious double cheeseburger from the. Uh. <laughs> I know, right? But it was big, it was monstrous. Uh, this is John Ryan, and welcome. This is Chuck Martinell. I just had a sandwich for lunch. That's all, all I had time for. I'm the sad one of the podcast, apparently. Hopefully, Megan, you, you can bring it home nicely. Hi, everybody. I'm Megan, and I have not had breakfast yet. Well, I'm sorry. I've had breakfast. I haven't had lunch yet. It's not even noon here in California. So, folks, we've had some exciting news here in Dragonlance fandom. Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman, and Penguin Random House have put out a review of the cover of Dragons of Deceit. This is book one of the Destinies trilogy. It is being released August 9th, 2022. That's my uh, my birthday. That is. Well, see, they did it just for you, man. I, I know. That's the whole series was dedicated just just to me on my birthday. Now I know what to get you. <laughs> there you go. So basically, a brief, brief synopsis of this. Well, first of all, they released the cover, and the cover is absolutely gorgeous. I'm not quite certain who the cover artist is. It's not Elmore, and it's not Stawicki, but um, it's Pretty gorgeous. It's got the heroine Destina Rosethorn, as well as Tasselhoff and some unnamed dwarf. So I'm kind of curious what his story is. Potential spoilers here. So, and I'm only saying this because this is what's been put out. So plug your ears if you don't want to hear it. Wait about 30 seconds. Basically, in this story, Destina is uh, heartbroken over the loss of her father who fought in the War of the Lance. And so she's wanting to go back in time and change that. And she's heard about this Tasselhoff guy who's been known to have a device of time journeying. And so she goes to find him and things ensue, but things don't quite go as she expects. And it goes from there. So I don't know much beyond that none of us do but i will say it sounds great i'm excited for this book it's really made me excited about dragonlance again as does any weiss and hickman dragonlance novel what do you guys think about it i think that it's uh gonna be pretty awesome personally i like the time frame we're assuming that the time frame is going to be after legends uh since tasselhoff has the device of time journeying so we haven't really seen a whole lot of activity between legends and the second generation of summer flame so it'll be interesting to see the state of the world at that time i am interested to see who her father is that she's trying to save is it somebody we know um it'll be interesting to see what sort of person her father was 
Plus, it mentions that there is a, another artifact that has to be involved in order to change time. And I feel like with what we know about Dragonlance time travel, in order to change time has to involve a Grey Gem race. So I'm thinking perhaps she's looking for the Grey Gem itself, because at this point in time, it would still exist. One thing that occurs to me with all this is, is this setting this up much like Star Trek, where it's creating a separate timeline than what we've had thus far, and thus creating an easier jumping on point for new fans? I feel like that's probably the case. That's the vibe that I'm getting. She's going to travel back to the War of the Lance, especially if she gets the Grey Gem. She's going to mess all kinds of things up, and then when she gets back to her time, everything's going to be completely different and we are going to be talking about Dragonlance timeline A versus the Dragons of Deceit timeline. I have reservations but I'm going to withhold them until I actually read the novel. Or trilogy. I'm kind of curious too if they're going to be incorporating more uh, D&D 5th editionisms. You know, I don't know, but that should be interesting to see what they do. My feeling is that if, if these novels bring more people into Dragonlance, at the heart of it, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look at this cover art, is by Phil Philip A. Ulrich. I look at the the main character, who, who we believe to be. What, do you call her Destina? Yeah, her name is Destina Rosethorn. Which I'm just uh, going to call her Destiny because that's what it reminds <laughs> me of. Well, she believes herself to be a favored child of Destiny, so that that tells me she's got a little bit of an ego there. But if you look at the armor she's wearing. What does that armor remind you of? Study the armor in that picture just for a second. I think you look at, what's the last time we saw plates slapped together like that? It, it almost has kind of a spidery, spiderweb look to it. Yeah, you that's know. what I was thinking. But if you look at that and then compare it to other artwork we've had with similar armor, there might be a, a, a nice clue in there for you. It reminds me of something, but I can't place it. I mean, you might look at this as a spidery type armor, but I look at that as man, that's plates. That's plates stacked on top of plates, kind of like scales. Well, the description that the publisher offered mentions that her father died during the War of the Lance, but it doesn't say which side he was fighting on. It does not. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and that dragon on the cover is a red dragon, so who knows? But boy, who also had a red? dragon and like dark color plates and had like a whip i think i'm picking up what you're putting down this could be this are you saying this could be verminard's daughter i'm thinking most likely we're looking at verminard's offspring i'm going to disagree i know you are but you're wrong so that's fine I'm going to agree just because I want you to be right. It, it's interesting. It, it would mean kind of a retcon of sorts for Verminard. I don't know. You just sprung that on me so suddenly. I didn't have time to think it through. I understand. I just I see that red dragon. I see see this male. It just kind of. I mean, I'm, I might be way off base, but yeah, I I don't know. With a with a name like uh, Rosethorn, though, that that's very Salonic sounding, and um, well, if you think about it. Rose and Thorn. Rose is a Salamnic order. Thorn, what is that? That ends up being a Knights of Tachesis order. So maybe that has a hint in it as well. Ah. I'm very intrigued now. I'm so much more excited for the novel now after this discussion. Someone caught between two worlds, maybe. 
perhaps perhaps uh, her mother is you know somebody that was on the heroic side and her, her father might be uh, verminard kind of like a steel bright blade type character right and maybe she took on her her mother's surname then because i don't know that verminard had a name other than verminard did he uh, maybe maybe he does now maybe it's rosnar how bad would that suck if your parents hated you so much that they put the word vermin in your name? And followed up with Nard. Actually, though, that A-A-R-D, that, that kind of sounds Salamic, though, to tell you the truth. I'm going to have to research Verminard now. I mean, it just, I mean, it just strikes me as, as a very likely candidate just based on that armor. I mean, maybe the art has nothing to do with the book. Maybe it's great red herring, but I look at that armor design. It just reminds me of the Dragon High Lord type armors. Yeah, and it wouldn't be the first time that there's been red herrings or mistakes on covers, you know. Uh, While you guys were talking, I looked at pictures of Verminard, and his his armor also has that kind of fur-lined cloak. And according to the Dragonlance wiki, uh, he has a brother named Aglica Dragonbane. So, brother with the last name of Dragonbane, and he is supposed to be in the line of Huma Dragonbane. Would stand that Verminard's, Verminard's oh, last right. name might be Dragonbane. Verminard could likely be an assumed name, you know. Well, I think by you look at you look at Verminard though, he was he was a kind of wasn't he cast off? Wasn't he uh, given up? I believe so. I believe so. Because his his backstory was he, he was traded instead of his brother. I'm gonna have to go back and research Verminard now. I never actually read the Verminard novel. Me neither. Well, now now you have reason to. The question the question is 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 uh, Red Dragon the offspring of Ember or is it Ember? See, when I first saw that picture of the dragon, I didn't even assume it was a red dragon. I mean, there's some red in it, but it also could potentially be like a coppery or a bronze metallic dragon. It's not like red red, like a lot of the red dragons are depicted. It's not classic red is what you're saying? Correct. I can see, or maybe it's just the way they've painted the, the sunlight hitting it. You know, it doesn't look as red. It looks more metallic to me. Oh yeah, you can see it around the head there. Well, you know, if you look like at the wings, it looks kind of reddish. But if you look at the head with the sun hitting it, it kind of has more of a golden sheen to it. So I think I would lean towards copper. So many mysteries. So many mysteries. Which is good because this will uh, give us a lot to talk about for the next nine months. <laughs> Indeed. No, I, I'm excited by it, you know. And, and like I was mentioning earlier, there are... I've seen a few times where the art on covers don't exactly match the uh, descriptions in the book. Uh, Verminard, uh, and Verminard, Vanderjack being number one on that list for me, but, you know, uh, Fieldthos as well. He was just depicted as a old wizard, and, you know, he's hardly an old wizard. So so we'll have to see. You you might be right. Uh, this and, this and might now- be the daughter of Verminard. I've destroyed the novels for for Trampus because he can't get behind this. Well, and, and it, who knows? It could be a red herring. I mean, I, I've assumed up to this point that her father was just, you know, the third Salomnic from the left. But uh, no. I didn't really think that it was anybody of import. It's got to be. I mean, to change that much history, you'd have to be somewhat in important i mean third soldier on the left even if you mucked up history trying to retrieve your artifact you got to have something that's going to really change the outcome of the war 
Maybe. And it would definitely be a critical moment if she goes back and stops. Maybe she prevents the companions from rescuing the prisoners at Pax Tharkis somehow. Maybe they all get crushed when the mechanism drops the rocks. <laughs> rocks fall, war over. Or, or maybe just, just Lorana dies. I got a feeling, though, that they're going to leave Chronicles intact. I don't know. That's been the foundation for Dragonlance for so long now. I, I don't see them messing it up. I wouldn't be surprised if they leave the basic story intact, but change the world in such a way that it's now going to allow for tieflings and all kinds of different 5e races. Or maybe a retcon Flint's death because that was stupid. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe we ought to talk about that some. I don't think so, because right now I'm looking at pictures of uh, red dragons and copper dragons, and I'm I'm going to be on Team Red for right now, because that's drawn. But yeah, we should move on to other things. Uh, share your thoughts on whether or not what you think this cover represents. Uh, this is the first major clue we have of the trilogy. Um, yes, we have the write-up description, um, but there's so much you can draw from that. Uh, we, we do know time, time travel will be a uh, part of it, which we guessed correctly what, a year ago? Um, so uh, we, we will keep up to date and we'll let you know what, what we know when we know, which is not much usually. So we are going to move on because about 37 years ago, we had a novel called, come out called Dragons of Some Spring Dawning. Anybody familiar with that one? I think um, I've read it. If you haven't had a chance to read this one yet, um, it's highly recommended. Uh, this episode, we're going to delve into a little bit of spoiler content so if you have not read dragons of spring dawning yet uh please put us on pause right now read through it in 15 minutes and come back to us or listen <laughs> listen to it on audible for about 20 hours and then come back to us this is the third story in the original trilogy of chronicles and we've discussed this a little bit but does this story and we're just kind of diving into things here set up the proper third story of a trilogy. So kind of, kind of give us a, uh, a look at where we are in the overall story, because for some of us, it's been maybe a so generation. Since we I read it. just, so dragons of winter night just ends with the battle of high Claris tower. Um, so we've had the death of Sturm, his funeral, um, some sad tears were shed. Lorana rises up as a hero during during this time, um, someone who's a thinker. We have the other group uh, made it through the Sylvanesti dream and kind of just meandered most of the second half of that story. That's how I felt. They kind of they, the, the the really the spotlight was on the the Hyclaris Tower group and uh, the Caramon Racelin Tannis group. Uh, kind of just is all over the place um just after after sylvanesti so that's where we pick up here is with the aftermath of all that stuff and they make it the tannis group makes it to flotsam and that's where tannis is captured by a dragon high lord at the end of winter night which we later learn was kitiara so we we end dragons of winter night as a proper empire strikes back ending where you have some joy, but most of it is just sorrow. Lots of people have died. Tannis is captured. And then we open up Dragons of Spring Dawning just a few weeks after those events, or even a few days. Yeah, I like how the kind of the cadence of, of these types of trilogies go, where the, the second book always ends on a downer. It makes usually pretty good cliffhanger 
type material. I think if you read books that talk about how the arc of a story is supposed to go in the middle, it's also always supposed to be the the hero having suffered their first major defeat. Which which they do and don't. I mean, they have a major victory um, at the end, but yeah, they, they also lose uh, Sturm, which is a huge blow especially to the readers who all of a sudden look at these characters might not make it. I, I think with Sturm's death, we start to realize that these characters have a mortality to them. And we'll be seeing that again later on in um, this book with another companion. So when we get into this book here, which character that we have coming into the story has the most potential in the book? You've got lots of characters here. Which character do you think going into it's going to be the one that rises to the top not just by power but by storytelling who's got the most compelling story in dragons of spring dawning i think it has to be at least going into the third novel it has to be lorana because she uses the dragon orb at the end of winter night she basically wins the battle of the high clarist's tower by using the dragon orb in a series called dragon lance she's the first person to actually use a dragon lance when she wounds sky on the top of the high clarist's tower and she gives a moving speech at Sturm's funeral, and I think that sets her up to be a major character going into Spring Dawning, which plays out at least in the first half of Spring Dawning. Yeah, Lorano is a character, I, I never got into her as much as some of the other characters, because, you know, when we first introdu- are introduced to her, she's immature, she's uh, lovesick over Tannis, and then by the third book, she's gone from all that to being the golden general, you know, the one person that everybody's willing to follow when she has like no battlefield experience whatsoever. I think that it works because she does have battle experience. She's the survivor of the High Clarist's Tower, and pretty much everybody who is a defender at the High Clarist's Tower is now dead. The upper ranks of the knighthood have been completely wiped out. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, everything, everybody that survived the High Clarist's Tower at this point are all, you know, mostly young crown knights who that might have been their first fight uh, ever. And it was her leadership and Sturm's that won the day. And maybe if Sturm had survived, he would have become the the general of the Knights of Salamnia. But as it was, she was the survivor. And I think she really stood out both with what she did with the dragon orb and then speaking, sort of calling out all the knights during Sturm's funeral and reminding them what they're supposed to be. And to be fair here, certain characters do have a natural leadership tendency. She has that natural ability. And this is where she's coming on her into her own. She's not reliant on Tannis anymore. She's become her own character. And that's one of the things I really liked about her. And I think Spring Dawning is supposed to be, at least, sorry, the first half of Spring Dawning is supposed to be the culmination of that arc. Well, I guess... Sorry, we'll get to it later, but at the very end of Spring Dawning, we see that arc of Lorana trying to become separate from Tannis reach its culmination. You know, oddly enough, this book series, the character who I feel has the least amount of potential going into the third book is actually Raceland. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I mean, like, he, he, he should have the most, uh, being one of the, the characters with, you know, in, in my opinion, the, the best background you know, the most kind of history. But in this book, he disappears for a part of it and then disappears again until the end. This book wasn't his story, though. You know, his his story is really fulfilled in the Legends series. But 
But Tra- Trampus, what, what, why would we want his story to continue? I mean, if you look at his story here, and I, I mean, I enjoy the Legends trilogy, don't get me wrong. You look at his story, he hasn't done much since Dragons of Autumn Twilight. I mean, he has, I mean, his character's kind of just been in the background other than small moments where he pops up and then he's gone. Like, this book here, I mean, what, what would be the buy-in to continue this character's story? I have to vehemently disagree with this. Oh, go ahead. Okay, so Winter Night, during the Sylvanesti dream, he takes on the black robes. He becomes stronger, healthier, more powerful. He goes toe-to-toe with the green dragon during the dream. Later in Winter Night, he takes control of the dragon orb, which he should not be able to do at his at his level of strength. Lorana does it too, but she almost gets killed in the process, and the dragon orb is destroyed. Raceland takes complete control of his dragon orb. And then when we get to Spring Dawning, we get the revelation of what Raceland did to Caramon during the tests at the Tower of High Sorcery. He abandons the whole group when he vanishes with the dragon orb. And then at the very end, he is standing side by side with the Queen of Darkness. He saves the day, basically. He's the reason that she's defeated. And then we get the ending where he goes to the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus, which I think after reading that final scene, you can't not want to read the Legends trilogy. I think if you read uh, I don't know if I agree with that. Lost Chronicles uh, immediately after this, or even in the middle of this, if you stop reading Spring Dawning when Raistlin leaves the ship in the Blood Sea and start reading Dragons of an Hourglass Mage, that will definitely propel you into uh, wanting to read more about him because obviously the Hourglass Mage book is 99.8% all about Raistlin and what happens to him in his absence during this book. So while he doesn't have the most uh, grand appearances in this book, they, they more than make up for it with a whole novel dedicated to what he was doing in those absences. And, and how many decades after this book did that come out? Uh, you know, three. I'm just saying, I'm going back to when there were three books in the series, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to base this conversation on. When there's only three books, and yes, as I said, he does pop in and do wonderful things when he appears, but he's, he's not a, I would call him a main character at any point in the story. He he is one of the characters, but he is not a, like, Lorana-type character. Even Kit has a bigger character arc than he does. He just kind of like, oh, I do great things. I'm Raceland. I'm powerful. That's his shtick. I just think that his scenes, even if there's not many of them, are so memorable that it makes him stand out. And if you look at, you know, if you Google Dragonlance art, you get 90% Raceland and 10% everybody else. People love him, even if he doesn't have a lot of screen time, quote unquote, in this novel. Or any of the novels. Like I said, until Legends, he's pretty much a, a, a he's powerful, I'll give you that. But he's a minor fixture in this whole whole story. Yes, he swoops in and saves the end of the day. But at that point, you know, the argument could be made. The story could have went, went a lot of different ways for, for ending it without him swooping in doing his magical ability. It's It's a nice story that he has, but as a character, I felt he was completely wasted. Until you get, as John points out, the the dragons of Hourglass Mage. Yeah, I I think his appeal just becomes from back in the 80s when you were playing AD&D, when you were a 15th level character, let's say, who's going to be the more interesting person? 
the the wizard or the fighter you know i, I think if the players just kind of gravitated more towards raceland because of of his abilities everybody can be a fighter da, 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 but it takes a special person to be a wizard and, and raceland's the most special because of his his history and you know we obviously don't learn a whole lot about his history until later but i i, I think there was just a the appeal is just because of you know him being a wizard at that time uh that's just kind of what most players uh would gravitate towards as being more interesting uh Brayson always represented that nerdy kid in school who was smart and got picked on all the time you know and so many of us could relate to that right so i i think that's why he was so popular also he looked cool he did look cool and he was described cool um he talked cool, you know, he whispered and everybody shut up when he started talking. So even though he whispered, everybody could hear him. I just think it is. He was the original edgelord. Yeah, very much so. Very <laughs> much so. Uh, and they've all paled in comparison since. So does anybody else have a lot of potential going into this book here? So we, we've talked about Lorana. What about Tasselhoff? Because the, the thing with Tasselhoff and, you, you know, he's... Not only a fan favorite, he's a favorite of Margaret's as well, which is part of the reason why we see him so much. But, you know, this is the original story where Tasselhoff, who's a kinder, you know, the so-called children of the world, where he kind of grows up and uh, because he's seen so much. And this is a kind of a theme that continues with him book after book as we go along. But this is the first time we've seen that. What do you think about him having the most change in potential? And I would say Tass has really grown up in this series. I mean, you went from the, the guy who the opening scenes of Autumn Twilight where he's joking and making fun of Tannis to the character that outrides a dragon into battle. Yeah, yeah. Tass had some good growth. His emotional state obviously changed. You know, he's he's not your typical kinder by the end of this war. He has seen a lot of dark things. He's seen a lot of death. And that would obviously change any uh, person who is deep down, you know, an innocent kind of mindset. Seeing that is going to change your outlook on life. I imagine that kinder must be tricky to write. It must be hard to write a character who doesn't feel fear, but he starts to really develop into somebody interesting in this book. End of winter night, beginning of spring dawning. Yeah, and I think it was at the start of Legends, he mentions how after the war he went back home for a little bit, but he just couldn't talk to other kinder because they just couldn't relate. They didn't understand. Right. Yep, exactly. I need a tissue now. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to something that probably won't make you have to have a tissue. Is Let's look at Kit here for a second. Kit is probably one of the more interesting characters. She's one of the few villains' points of view we get. And I always thought it was very interesting. I mean, maybe I'm I'm alone in this thought, but so she's at the High Claris Tower. She's involved in two battles going up to the High Claris Tower in a couple of days. They defeat Derek Karmgard out on the field, and then they assault the tower and are repelled by Lorana. And then how many days later is she in Flotsam? Like one or two days, a well, week. She's not a dragon. I understand, but she is the commanding general of the Blue Dragon Army, and within a week, they they are no longer on the gates, uh, knocking on the gates of Palanthus. You know, with the High Claris Tower. Now she's all the way, you know, halfway across the continent. Is there a little time issue going on here? Like, if if you really think about this in terms of like uh, military points, would you have your, your your commanding officer staff pull out after one defeat? abandon 
all of Salamnia and send her all the way back to Flotsam? I mean, she's not even going to Naraka. She's going to Flotsam. What happens in Flotsam? That's where Barum is. There's a certain um, cell sword there, and well, I'm just saying, you know, what, would you take your, your commanding general of one, of the, one of the dragon armies and move it, have them fly across the continent instead of leading their troops? That, that, that to me, that this is why the dragon army is going to lose is because they have terrible leadership styles. Their command structure is horrible. Oh yeah, Kittyara will do what Kittyara does. Maybe that's what the new novel is about. Destina goes back to rearrange the dragon army's chain of command. Somebody needs to. She says, we need to do an internal audit here. <laughs> Great. Ocean shows up. And suddenly a gnome perks up and says, ha audit. <laughs> I don't know. I never, I never noticed Kitiara's back and forth until you pointed it out. Now I'm starting to notice it. I think Kitiara herself moving back and forth isn't such a problem because she's got Sky. Sky is a dragon among dragons. I think it's reasonable that he can go from the High Clarith's Tower to Flotsam and back and forth. But I am a little bit confused about the troop movements because she seems to be in charge of the troops in Flotsam, but then she's in charge of the troops in the High Clarice Tower. I don't know if she's actually there when Derek Crownguard is defeated. I feel like that was Bakaris in charge in that situation. And I think she's in Flotsam looking for Barum, but I don't know. Now I'm going to have to agonize over it. Well, the, the, but she's also in Tarsus in charge of those troops earlier. And I understand, like, there's time enough for them, for her from Tarsus to move back to Salamnia. But also, if you look at the map of Ancelon, wow. Well, Tarsus was the That's red. Some serious marching. Tarsus was attacked by the Red Dragon Army. Uh, Kitiara just happened to be there um, for her own agenda. Just just flying by. Hey, how you doing? You're, you're assaulting a city? Yes, I'll join you. Well, she was looking for Tannis. I know. I know she's looking for Tannis, but if you, I mean, if you, but that's, that's the thing. Like She's a loose cannon in, in, in the Dragon Army. She's supposed to be this trusted leader, but yet... That's what know. makes her fun. Nobody wants to read stories about the general who follows the rules. Yeah, but it feels like sometimes like Flotsam feels like she's kind of forced into that that story right there like it feels like she was shoved in there like we want this plot device to keep going but we'll just magically hand wave this and nobody will notice because as, as you get older and you start learning more about how troops move and things like that you're like there's no way you can march troops non-stop from point a to point b in a matter of days without losing most of your force it's no wonder why lorana wiped him up at, at the the campaign of Vingar, they were exhausted. They couldn't fight. They were constantly marching everywhere. They're all just going from point A to point B. In fact, the battle was was during their 15-minute break period. <laughs> we're union. We're not fighting. We are guaranteed a 15-minute break every day. <laughs> <laughs> just one. Because <laughs> you guys got to be in uh, sanction tonight, uh, and we're leaving the High Clares Tower in 10 minutes. So let's go. <laughs> now, now that I've affected you, I will uh, move on. Yeah, thanks for sowing seeds of doubt there, man. (laughs) Infected me with your cynicism. I mean, now I can't unsee it. (laughs) To me, Lorana was not 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 the greatest general ever. She was just a good general who took out an exhausted blue dragon army. Hey, sometimes it's just showing up. All right, we'll move on here. So, um, in this book, we also find out Kit is in Thalassum looking for a certain guy. And yes, we, we know she's looking for Tannis, but she's supposed to be looking for somebody else, actually. And that person has a green gemstone shoved into his chest. 
pretty much a typical search type thing where you just look at, you know, you rip open shirts and you don't know, no, no green gemstone there. What is um, it with characters ripping their shirts open in Dragonlance anyway? That's a lot of Hulk Hogan. It's <laughs> oh, the eighties. Yeah. Hogan, <laughs> Hulk Hogan was big. I mean, you got ripped the shirt off, but you look, look at this. We, so we got Barum and, and for the first time in the novels, we get Barum's story. What do you guys think of Barum? I have a lot of strong feelings about Barum, which I would love to share with you. Please do. <laughs> I think Barum serves the same function in the Dragonlance trilogy that the One Ring serves in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is you're telling a story against the backdrop of this big war, but you also want the story to be focused on individual ordinary people like Frodo and like Tannis. But you can't have, you need a way that these individual ordinary people can make a difference to the overall story. And that's where Barum comes in. Let's say Tannis is Frodo, and then Barum is the One Ring. He's the thing that they have to protect from the Dark Lord. And if they can protect him, if they can do whatever they need to do with him, they can save the day. But if he gets caught, it's all over. It gives the characters in the story a big role to play in this much grander narrative. I think that's well said. I, I I can't even give you a rebuttal. Yeah, I've we, we've obviously heard many comparisons between Dragonlance and Lord of the Rings over the years, but I've never actually thought about it like that. You got to take Barum back to where he was, where he got the green stone, green gemstone, in order to end the thing, um, and that's exactly the ring back to Mount Doom. So uh, that is that is an amazing observation. But I have a lot of problems with Barum in the sense that the rules for how Barum and his green gemstone are supposed to work are very unclear. It's definitely not as straightforward as throw ring in lava, bad guy die. I don't understand why he has the green gemstone. I don't understand why it makes him immortal. I don't understand why bringing him back to Naraka would bring the Queen of Darkness into the world. It, it's all very confusing. And when I when I was writing this episode for my podcast, I read through this part over and over again, and I could not make sense of it. If you're just a casual reader, it's perfectly fine. But if you're really deep diving into it, it's very hard to unpack. The bottom line is that the the love between Barum and Jasla is what keeps the Dark Queen out, that keeps Takesis locked away, because Takesis is everything that love is not. So it has to be something performed in love that will be her undoing. Getting Barum back to the Foundation Stone to reunite him with his sister that he accidentally killed. That is, the, the love between those two is what locks out Tachesis. Whereas the Dragon Armies want to use him as, you know, they, they know that he is the key to opening the portal between uh, the realm and the abyss. So he's in a quite precarious state because he can either lock it by dying at that scene or at that site or the magic, whatever, because when he got the green gemstone, Takesis put that in him as a future way to get out once she was strong enough. And that's just from my memory, uh, from what I remember about the story, but that it was Takesis that put the green gemstone in him to kind of pave a way for her to return in the future. I thought he kind of fell on it or something. Or am I remembering that wrong? No, Takesis deliberately puts it in him. It was Jasla that fell. Jasla fell and basically hit her head on the foundation stone and died. Um, but her kind of her blood 
kind of corrupted uh, what was going on with it and was part of keeping Barum alive indefinitely. What I remember from the reading, Barum pushes Jasla, not meaning to hurt her, but she loses her footing. She falls over, hits her head, dies. When her blood gets spilled on the foundation stone, Takesis starts to come through. The temple starts to reform and then Jasla's spirit blocks her from entering. Let's say Barum comes back to Naraka. He's reunited with Jasla. And then what happens? Does does that bring Takesis through or does that permanently stop her from coming through? And if it permanently stops her from coming through, why does she why does she want him? Doesn't she want to keep him as far away from Naraka as she can? Him coming through would allow his sister's spirit to continue on. But he's also the key to stopping her. So it's a catch twenty two. You need you need him to get rid of get rid of the blockage, but he can also make it permanent or help make it permanent. Maybe it's Barum himself, Barum the, the person, is what will prevent her from coming through, but the gemstone is what will allow her to come through. Correct. All right, I, I can see that. So kind of the catch-22 thing there. If, now, if you could just carve the gem out of his chest, well, that would have worked. Well, that's probably what Takesis wants to do. If she captures him, that's she doesn't need Barum the person, she just needs the gemstone. Yes. I also think Barum is just kind of boring. Yeah, agreed. He doesn't talk for the first two novels. Okay. The third novel, he starts talking, but he's mostly just sullen the entire time. And then at the end of the novel, he goes crazy. The only time that he has any sort of personality is when is when Flint dies. Spoiler alert. I guess we already spoiled it. But that's really the only time when he shows any personality. Yeah. That's why we did a long, long spoiler alert before we start the episode. So if, if, if they were spoiled now, they were forewarned. Yeah, you've had 37 years. Not enough time. Not enough time. I've been busy. Oh, sorry. I was having a moment. Megan, you made Chuck cry again. Sorry, Chuck. Yeah. I didn't mean to. I can't get together. We were talking about Flint's death, and I didn't know he died yet. Even though the next thing in the show notes. Well, it's very sad. Do you want me to tell you about it? So, so speaking of Flint's death, this is one of those things that, as a reader, I remember reading this the first time, cruising through the book. and. Uh, you get to the part where they're in God's home, and I'm kind of excited the first time reading it, thinking, oh my gosh, there's got to be some awesome stuff you're going to find in God's home. Like, they discovered God's home. And the only thing I got out of that whole section was Flint ran ahead. He, he, he has a massive heart attack and dies. And it's like, what's the purpose of this? We've already had the growth with Tass with Sturm's death. Now we're going to have, what, another series of growth with, with this? like. I could one or the other was fine to have task grow, but tell me, you guys explain to me what is the purpose of Flint's death? In my mind, a lot of the purpose of Flint's death was to show that we don't all die the honorable death in battle. You know that romanticized viewpoint that all warriors seem to have. It shows that you know sometimes life just happens. And it, it became too much for him. Plus, I mean, let's face it, Flint will deny it to the moon and back, but or to the moons and back, but uh, he was Tass's best friend. You've already had its growth of Tass losing a close friend. You going to double down on this then? Like, to me, that's, uh, that's kind of a lame, lame reason to kill someone off, is this is fantasy. This is not mystery. This is not boring good old uh 
documentary type stuff. This is supposed to be fantasy. Uh, to read a character just taking, going for a little jog, collapsing and dying, like I, I need, I need to know why. So, thank you for your answer, Trampus. It's it's logical, and I, and I do think it's you're on point of what what's being explained. But for to me as a reader, eh, that's kind of lame. Yeah, I don't know. To me as a reader, it's it's saying. Okay, this this is more real. This is not oh, here's warrior number 1 and he dies in battle and here's warrior number 2 and he dies in battle. You know, you got to take a nap after that. I mean, this provides some variety. And, you know, they they might have been at this point trying to figure out what to do with everybody at the final scenes of the book, you know, where would Flint fit in? Uh, during the attack on the temple, what would he be doing? Would he be in the way? Would they forget about him? You know, they've already brought him along. They have to do something with him. They couldn't leave him in Calaman with Gold Moon and Riverwind. But it also reveals who Fisman is. Fisman takes him to the center of God's home. They disappear in sparkly lights, and then they see the Valiant Warrior constellation reflected on the surface of God's home. Um, so that is your first big. Oh, moment of of who Fisben potentially is. It'll come right out and say it, but if you're reading this kind of stuff, you know you're usually intuitive enough to put two and two together, and you can figure that out. Maybe they wanted to get that out there. You know that this is who Fisben has been the whole time, and they just used Flint's death as a catalyst to kind of get the wheels rolling rolling on that part. I have a theory that from the point of view of a storyteller, somebody writing a story that Flint's death causes a change in Tannis. Tannis up until this point, up until Flint's death, Tannis is very driven by kind of anger and and especially towards Barum. He seems to really hate Barum. He stabs him when he thinks that Barum somehow caused Flint's death. But after Flint's death, Tannis calms down a lot more and it becomes more about saving the day, saving Lorana, and he isn't driven by this sort of relentless anger towards himself, towards everybody else. But even if Chuck is right and the scene doesn't have any deeper meaning, I think it's still a really powerful scene, especially at the very end when Tasselhoff is holding Flint's helmet and crying. That part still gets me every time. It was probably the uh, Griffin man. <laughs> most oh, people he was don't. Just, he was just having an allergic reaction. Yeah, most people don't real, realize that Kendra are are, are uh, allergic to griffins. It, I, I think too part of that ties to that old old friendship they had. You know, <clears throat> Flint was probably Tannis's oldest friend. He's also a father figure um, amongst the group. And, and you know, something too that strikes true throughout all of the Dragonlance novels that Weiss and Hickman have written is that um, they wanted to show that you can die in different ways, you know, that mortality happens for different reasons. And I just want to add that Flint's death isn't entirely meaningless. He does stop Barum from escaping. Yeah, like I said, it's... But he stops him by dying, but still. You know, once again, to have these kind of deaths in a book, it's just, I don't know. Like I said, if, if mundane deaths in a fantasy book don't set well with most readers. All right, so we have beaten Flint's death to death, literally. I mean, that was one of my better, better ones. Come on, folks. I'm laughing on the inside. I'm crying All on right. the inside. Like I just didn't push my button to <laughs> unmute myself. I did chuckle. 
<laughs> I was laughing too hard to find the push to talk. So, button. so yes, I I have a lot of feelings about Flynn's death. Now, this next topic, I don't really give two flubs about, but apparently, lots of people do. I don't really care because I've just seen Kit magically transport across the the, the continent for love. Why wouldn't Lorana just abandon the, the, the good dragon, the, the good forces, the, the Whitestone forces, the Whitestone Council army? Why wouldn't she just abandon it and run straight to Namraka? At this point, sure, I believe it. Yeah, even when I was a teenager and I read this for the first time, I was like, WTF, Lorana, like, you are leaving everything to go rescue the man that, you know, you're being told is been cheating on you with this dragon high lord um and you run off to save him screw everybody else screw the knights screw the war uh you just you just want to save your dude that that just cheated on you i actually need to refute something that john said although it actually strengthens his point um so john says that the rana walks into this trap trying trying to save tassel or tassel i'm trying to save tannis whoa there's a new love triangle (laughs) (laughs) but she doesn't even do it to save Tannis. She does it to say goodbye to Tannis. Kitiara tells her that Tannis is dying and that there's no hope to save him. Lorana is just going to say goodbye. I think that's even yeah. worse. Even if she was going to save him, that I would be a bit more lenient about. But just to say goodbye to somebody who's dying anyway, do you think? I mean, even Tannis wouldn't want that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I did misspeak about that part. I, I'm going to just throw one thing out here. How many people have done something stupid in the name of love? Go I mean, all of during them. a war to uh, a lot say, of say goodbye to my dying. I don't know. There's a lot of people in that category. Yeah, but this is more than just oh, I've got a boyfriend. This is you know, it's her soulmate. Where have we gotten that picture before in this entire series? All we have we ever had a moment where that that defines that they are really soulmates? And that's a serious question. I I can't think of anything in the entire series that when they're two when these two are together, other than casually dating, that's all I've ever gotten. Or am I or am I way off base here? I think it's in the subtext. Yeah, read between the lines now. Yeah, exactly. Even I mean, they spent. They spend most of the books separate from each other, but they're always thinking about one another. Even okay, in the so very Trampus is of... right, you're saying. Trampus is right. Trampus is always right. Oh, bless you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Hold on. Let's... Trampus, I just had to make a little, I just having a little fun here. Hold on. Let me mark this down on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's day 345 or 50 out of the year. I am right for the first time. On the 23rd day of the 12th month in the year 2021, Trampus was right. It would never happen again. For this calendar year. (laughs) I know that certain people disagree and think maybe it's not outside the realm of possibility that somebody would do something so foolish for their soulmate, but to risk the entire war effort for it, that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, you know, elves and humans and the knights, you know, at this point have a very tenuous and tense relationship. You've just been awarded leadership of the knights' armies by the knights who haven't been trusting you. And now you're going to give them a reason to, oh, well, we were right the whole time. Elves are, are flippant little things uh, that, that don't care about anything except love and flowers uh, because there she goes. 
I don't feel like there's quite any way to reconcile this Lorano issue. The story needs the companions to go to Naraka with Barum. Having Lorana there gives Tanis a reason to be going to Naraka. And I think that's ultimately what it boils down to. The thing, for me, that doesn't even bother me. That's kind of story structure. What bothers me is that she walks into this trap. Why not just have her captured in battle? I think it's meant to sort of strengthen this soulmate relationship between Lorana and Tanis that she would go to such extreme lengths. But I don't think anything would be diminished by having her captured some other way. Even Lorana can fail her wisdom save. That must that must be it. She's not proficient. She's not proficient in a She must deception. have spent all of her inspiration to control the dragon orb and uh, left her com- completely unprepared for any other mental challenge. She had two levels of exhaustion after that. She is completely in love with Tannis. We we know that. She's been smitten by uh, by him the entire time. He has not been. So yeah, I mean, as Trampas has said, you, you, people do crazy things for love. <sighs> crazy I just got, once again, I just accept this at this point. Like, okay, it can happen, I guess. You've just been given a huge promotion and you're like, my uh, boyfriend's dying? I'll see you later. I guess that's what, I mean, when you're the boss, you get to do these things. Yeah, I guess so. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you I think mean, about it. but we've all, we've all had that boss where they get promoted and suddenly all they do is just sit in the office working on the computer. They take two-hour lunches. They risk their lives to go say goodbye to their dying boyfriends, etc. It's happened to yeah, all of us at least once. <laughs> I mean, cross-country during, during a war zone. I just like, I give up. Boss is telling you you need to be on the other side of the country in ten minutes. And and speaking of 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 boyfriends here, let's look at Tanis during this time now. So we have Lorana, and yes, people will, will probably hammer us forever on not embracing that she was making a smart play. Sure, sure she was. See, I just said it. She was making a smart play. But Tanis, on the other hand, pulls off the classic movie trope of I will pretend to join you, but during the joining process, I will steal the one thing that you need to fulfill the prophecy or whatever, and then we will win and have a musical number. I don't recall the musical number. Well, that's because they didn't make the third movie, uh, the animated movie. If they would have, it would have been a musical number. Or, or the bard... Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. The bard hadn't fully matured as a class yet. But we look at Tannis here. So we have Tannis pulling off the classic switcheroo. He he pretends he's going to join, so they have this big ceremony, and during the ceremony, he snatches the crown. What do you think of this? This is one of those points where I or one of these scenes I just look at him like, are we running out of pages? This is just how we're really going to stop the whole thing? Quite honestly, I think that whole scene and really the entire series would have been better and we would have cared about it more had Ariakas been built up as a character. Right. All Ariakas is, is, oh, look, I'm the big bad end guy that we've know nothing about and oh you're going to steal my you know you're going to kill me grant i have not read the novel about him i will say i thought he was uh, much more interesting in um i think his brothers in arms quite honestly i thought his son area um was far more interesting he's definitely the better character of the two i mean area basically said hey dark queen here's why you keep losing here's my plan on us winning and she could have just killed him but uh she she listened to him. She's like, well, he has a point. She's like, your dad was kind of an idiot. Technically, Ariakin is half God, so he, yeah. got, he, got his, he got his mother's genes, apparently. She's a minor <laughs> God. I don't know how to feel about this scene. I 
think that it's clever as a way to wrap things up. Like what I was talking about with the One Ring, you need a way that a single individual can make a tremendous impact on a global event. And I think that's what they were going for. This scene when uh, Ariakas dies is also about Raceland. It's not just about Tannis because it's Raceland is the one that drops the magical shield around him. So it's Raceland betraying the Dark Queen after she's given him everything that he asked for. Kind of setting up the relationship between Raceland and the Dark Queen for the next trilogy. But I don't really have too many thoughts about this scene. I, I thought it was effective. It got the job done. It was it dragged on a bit too long, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I thought the scene itself was okay. The crown of power, it just seemed like another MacGuffin on top of all the other MacGuffins they had. So not only do you need the green gemstone man, but now in order to rule, you need this crown because whoever holds the crown rules. It just seemed like there was a lot going on. And then, you know, that ended up never becoming anything of significance again until you read the King Priest trilogy, which is obviously way before this. The This part wasn't, uh, I, I thought it was kind of anticlimactic, um, climactic the way the, the ending came about. Well, I, but I think that what you hit the nail on the head there, John, is we have now we have the crown, crown of power. We've got the green gemstone. We've got we've got all this stuff that gets introduced late in the story that all of a sudden not supposed to be significant, important, and powerful. Right. right. If we would have had some sort of inkling about what that stuff was before, you know, mention this crown, mention this portal um, underneath the temple that the foundation stone. I don't know. I feel like it was a little bit too late for all that. If the story of Chronicles would have opened up with Barum's telling of what happened to his sister, just as your prelude, I think that the, the, the trilogy as a whole, this part here would have meant more. If you were just included as little nuggets in what these things are, why they're important, like the green gemstone man, for the most of the book, as you guys have said, it's just like, oh, whatever. And, and the character's like, I don't care. He's flat and boring. And this scene right here is exact. It's a classic example of a lot of this is it's a flat and boring scene. Yes, you get some cool uh, things out of it. It's like watching an action movie where there's a couple of cool fights scenes or a couple of cool fight sequences in the end battle. But overall, uh, I look at this and you get Raceland coming in, dropping a shield. Cool. Tana stabs Ariakas through the heart. Cool. And then we we're done. I have to say, though, that the Rana gets a very cool moment during this scene that nobody has mentioned yet, where after Ariakas has been killed, Tannis jumps down onto the platform where the Rana is being held to try to save her, and she pushes him off the platform. She's like, I'm done with you. I'm going to get myself out of this. I thought this was the culmination of the Rana tannis love story. She's in love with Tannis, yes, but she's also become fully her own person. It was in some ways a vindication for Lorana having been captured that she got to have this moment. Even if the part with the crown of power seems a little bit slapped together, that moment with Lorana and then um, the moment when Kitiara lets Lorana and Tannis escape because she basically wants them to owe her for the rest of their lives. I thought that was kind of a neat scene. And then it also sets up Lord Soth's relationship with Kitiara going forward. Maybe one of the reasons that a lot of this scene doesn't feel like a satisfying conclusion is that it's setting up a lot of things for the next trilogy. Like we see that in movies when, like the Amazing Spider-Man movies, when they're trying to set up so much stuff for the next movie that the movie you're watching kind of gets lost. Reminds me I'm a little behind on my Spider-Man movies. And I say, and that drops drops us right down to kind of like you have the reuniting of folks. You know, you're talking about the Kit Tannis Lorana resolution. Um, you got Carmen and Raceland there, where Raceland's like, I don't like you. 
you suck. I'm going to be the most powerful guy in the world and flies away. Well, ba- you know, basically Raceland matured into his own individual being before Karaman did. I would say Raceland's always been his own individual. Even going back to the uh, prelude novels, Margaret wrote that character's always been his own personality. Well, personality, yes, but he always had to rely on Karaman for certain physical things, you know, because he was so sick. But even in those original trilogies, he hated Karaman for that. Can I go off on a little bit of a tangent here? Oh, yeah. This is open open area here because we're into your overall thoughts, anything we missed. This is, this is open grass. Okay. So we talk about all the characters reuniting at the end of the book. And that reminds me of the two characters who aren't there, which is Goldmoon and Riverwind. Specifically, I'm thinking of Goldmoon. I have a very special connection to Goldmoon. I don't know if you guys know this, but I play Goldmoon in an ongoing campaign. So she's very close to my heart. And I don't like the fact that Goldmoon and Riverwind don't come along with the group just because Goldmoon is pregnant. I get that they didn't want to have too many characters in this final scene. And I get that this was 1980. 687 and maybe the idea of sending a pregnant woman off into a war zone was probably just a non-starter but it kind of reminds me of recently there was a, a thing on the news where a certain tv personality was complaining about a pregnant woman serving in i think the air force and it just it just bothers me i think that Goldmoon should have been there i don't like how she just vanishes after the end of autumn twilight she barely does anything in winter night she does less in spring dawning and i would have liked to have seen her there i think that when you're going to attack the temple of an evil goddess maybe having a cleric of good with you is a good thing i understand why they didn't include her but personally it bothers me yeah it's interesting that you say that and i'll i'll try very hard not to spoil the latest wheel of time if if you're watching wheel of time spoiler alert but i'm just all i'll say is in that one there is a very pregnant lady who is fighting in a battle for her life. I, I saw that and I'm like, oh my lord, that poor lady, you know. And somehow throughout going through labor, she's still kicking butt. It's, it's amazing. That was a very cool scene. I remember watching that and thinking, I've never seen anything like this on TV. But you did have the perfect exit strategy for Gold Moon and River Riverwind after the first book, after their wedding. You could have had them stayed with Elliston and the um, refugees, right? For protection, for learning. Once again, you've got two clerics of good, but they they brought her brought her along. And as Megan said, I mean, her role just diminished to nothing. And it's like the third book is like. Well, we're just gonna stay here because uh, she's 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 pregnant, and yet we know kitten can fly around the continent every five seconds. But Gold Moon needs to stay here and rest because she's with child. It's they should have ridiculous. they should have gone on their honeymoon after Autumn Twilight. But where do you go? Where do you go on honeymoon if you live on Ancelon? The Barden. Thor Barden. Nobody would go to Thor Barden for their honeymoon. Well, think about that. you would be left alone the entire time. <laughs> There's got to be, be somewhere warm, like the uh, Thor Barden, the Dragon, the Dragon Isles. Oh yeah, that's a great spot. Go to go to Gargath's Island for your honeymoon. Be, be you're, sure to visit you're looking the for someplace. <laughs> you're looking for someplace warm, uh, Talidus. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. The entire continent's warm. Maybe Chris Pearson will write another trilogy called Honeymoon on Talidas. More thoughts on this uh, novel before we wrap it up here. I thought it was 
pretty good. Like I said, there's things I didn't like about it, things that I really liked as you know, a, a big fan of Raceland. Uh, I felt that he didn't really have a whole lot to do here, but when he did show up, it was it was pretty significant. I can forgive it. Uh, the the book itself, the story was cool, slightly anticlimactic ending, but I, I thought you know there was just a lot going on at the end. It kind of made everything kind of chaotic and scattered. But uh, overall, I like the book. I, I I love the trilogy. Obviously, I think my favorite of the three is autumn twilight but uh i think that dragons of spring dawning is definitely worth a read to those that haven't read it if you're new to Dragonlance, definitely need to read this and and see what's going on to see how the war ends i think that even though we've had a lot of even though we've talked about a lot of issues with the book i think it's by necessity since when you have an issue that's what you talk about but there is a lot of things that I really love in this book. I love the entire sequence when they are underwater in Istar. That part is really cool. I love when Tasselhoff and Flint are fighting on Dragonback. And I love the ending. I think the ending when Raceland returns, arrives at the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus. That part is just so cool. And it gives me goosebumps, makes me want to read Legends right away. Yeah, that was my favorite part so, of the book. Very strong finish. What really strikes me about Spring Dawning and... I remember this from way back in the day is, you know, Dragonlance is all about the balance between good and evil. And you end this book and it isn't a deal where, oh, the good guys won and everything's hunky-dory and they all lived happily ever after. It's like, yeah, the good guys won, kind of, but a lot of the bad guys are still around too. And it was just kind of left in balance. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the main takeaway for all this is we all four enjoy these books. I mean, we, we might sit here and point out flaws and things that we think were, were, were wrong or not the way we would have done it. But at the end of the day, we, we all, all of us enjoy reading these books over, well, three or four of us enjoy reading these books over and over <laughs> again. Yeah, wow. absolutely. I'm just, just going to buy Trampus an Audible membership so he listen to them over and over again. <laughs> and if we didn't, if we didn't love these books so much, we wouldn't bother to talk about them. Yeah, and, and it, sure. it, when when you are passionate about something, that comes out. So you know, when in these discussions, we get passionate. We're not being don't take it as critical conversation. Take it as more as a it's it's what we we've loved and enjoyed. For some of us, we've read them back in the eighties. For some of us, we read them back in the nineties. For some folks, you're just starting them now, which is awesome. Yeah, one one thing to note on this uh, show, too, is we try very hard to present different points of view, um, largely for the sake of discussion, but to give you guys at home a, a greater viewpoint of everything going on. And sometimes we'll purposely go down the road of being contrary. You know, I've done it, Chuck's done it. Do not. With that note, Travis, you want to take us home? All right. Well, folks, I want to thank you all for uh, joining us today. Um, we look forward to the new year. On behalf of the uh, Dragonlance Nexus, I am Trampus Whiteman. I'm John Ryan. I'm Chuck Martinell. And I am Megan J. No last name. And with that, we will see you next time. 